thought I'd come down here today whenever our numbers are a little reduced with weather. I like to come down nice and close, so I've been feeling a little under the weather, and hopefully my voice will carry a little bit better down this way. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to know your mind? Would you help us to understand this passage well? Lord, it's such a, an amazing thing to see you see, to see you deal so decisively with that which holds us back. These things from which we need saving, you have crushed them, you've buried them, you've dealt with them. And just as you brought the children of Israel to this place where their past raised its ugly head and threatened to end their lives, they were never safer. They needed only to look to you to stand and behold the salvation of the Lord. And I pray that we would begin, even this morning, to begin to do that with our own faith as we look to you for your great redemption. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think it's a universal Christian experience. When a person decides that it's time to start following Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to place their faith in him and begin to move forward. Oftentimes, there's a bit of a honeymoon phase. It can last six weeks, six months, a few years. But eventually, before too long, something of the past, something of the past life, comes up and confronts the Christian. It asks them, who are you going to serve? Are you really going to be this person and follow Christ? Or are you going to go back to your old ways? That can be... That can take many forms, can't it? It can be sin. A sin that always kept you and held you and had you obeying its every command. It can be the cares of this world. Jesus says they're like thorns that grow up and choke out the early growth. It can be family. Their influence on you. It can be friends. It can be your aims in life, whatever it is. But that thing that had your heart before you came to Christ rises up like a big bully and comes storming back into your heart. And you can even move away. You can get far away from those influences, but you know what you can never run from? The memories of what you did. You'll take those with you wherever you go. And sometimes those rise up as well. As I said before, like a giant bully. And it asks you the question, who are you going to follow? And I want you to know that the crossing of the Red Sea is intended to be a picture. It's an event, for sure. But it's a picture of how God landed a knockout blow on the Egyptians. He punched the bully right in the nose. He cut off the bully's head, however you want to put it. And that bully will never bother these people again. God has done something similar with your past. He has defeated it. He has killed it. He has broken it. He has buried it. He's thrown it into the deepest sea. The only reason you submit to it. It's because you want to. 
It holds no authority over you anymore. For God has made it. And let this crossing of the Red Sea be a reminder for you that God deals decisively with all those things that threaten the salvation of your soul. We read this morning from Exodus chapter 14. And I'd like to introduce a few things, a few ideas before we move into the meat of the text. God's people are moving ahead, but they're moving ahead um, with some unfinished business behind them. They still have this army that wants to pursue them. Pharaoh still wants to come and see them. Pharaoh still wants to destroy them. And as long as the army of Pharaoh remains alive and active, there's always going to be a threat to God's people. Furthermore, the people of Israel don't exactly know where they're going. There's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that leads them, but God has been directing them, and God brings them to a place called the Red Sea Crossing. Now, the Red Sea Crossing, I want you to know from an Old Testament perspective, is the single most significant theological event in the Old Testament. It's the single most important theological event of the Old Testament. Now you'll say, it wasn't a theological event. It was a military triumph. Well, (laughs) we're going to talk about that. This was a military triumph with a theological You see, God says it right away. He says, this is a holy war between me and Pharaoh. Yahweh and Pharaoh are in the middle of a holy war. And we're going to talk about how that's expressed in a few different ways. The passage that we're going to study in Exodus 14 breaks down into four basic parts. There's God's plan. There's Pharaoh's pursuit, Israel's desperation, and God's deliverance. If you want to write down those four points, we'll tease those out as we go forward. But the passage breaks down a little unequally into those four parts. But the one thing that I want us to see before we get going, I want to prove ever so slightly to you, and we'll prove it moving forward here, that this victory was not a military one, but a theological one. This was a victory with theological import. Let's recall some famous battles of history's past. We've got Trafalgar, Waterloo, Iwo Jima, Stalingrad, Gettysburg. Did you know before these wars began, no admirals, no generals sat down and drew a circle around Gettysburg, for example, and said, this is where there's going to be a great battle. It just happened there by accident. It's a place where two armies collided. Same for Stalingrad, same for Iwo Jima. Nobody had ever heard of that before a battle was fought there. Yet these places are enshrined in our memories because they're places of great import. And I want you to know that nobody, not a single person, knows where this event occurred. God himself makes sure that nobody knows where Israel crossed the Red Sea. In fact, That cuts to a certain point. Did you know that in our passage, it's not called the Red Sea? I'm not entirely sure why translators call it the Red Sea, because it literally translates to the Sea of 
reeds. The Sea of Reeds. Now, the Sea of Reeds is a location that's a total mystery. We're told that it's near Pi-Hahiroth. It's near a couple of these other places. We don't have any record that these places existed with the exception of Pi-Hahiroth. It's mentioned one time in Egyptian literature as a place, but we're not told where it is. We're not even told if it's a big town, small town. We're not told anything about it or its purpose, just that it exists. You see, God didn't want Israel to memorialize the place. That's what he did when they crossed the Jordan River. Do you remember what they did? They took 12 stones out of the Jordan River and stacked them up. But for this place, there's no memorial. There's no remembrance of the place. In fact, it's called the Sea of Reeds because Moses is trying to communicate the rich irony of this passage. This is a story. This is a place that begins back in Exodus chapter 2. Do you remember Moses? The child saved in a basket that his mother was made. And do you remember where his mother hid that basket? In reeds. So now this child whose life Pharaoh sought that was saved by the sea of reeds is now delivered ultimately. And Pharaoh, the one who sought his life, is destroyed by the sea of reeds. I have a map up here for you if you'd like to look at it. This is the Sinai Peninsula. As you look at the map on your left, you'll see the continent of Africa, and on your right, the continent of Asia. Sinai connects the two. The body of water that you see above and to the left is the Mediterranean Sea, and the body of water with two little horns on it is the Red Sea. The Red Sea has those two little forks, the Gulf of Suez on the left and the Gulf of Aqaba on the right. I've got some arrows that are drawn. There are three potentially possible locations where Israel crossed. You'll see scholars argue to no end which of those three places it could be. It could have been the left one, the Gulf of Aqaba. Could have been the right one, the Suez. Or I think I have those switched, Suez and then Gulf of Aqaba. Or it may not have been in the Red Sea at all. There were a body of lakes, a chain of lakes between the Gulf of Aqaba and the Mediterranean Sea, large lakes that are known to have lots of reeds growing out of them. And it could have been a big lake that Pharaoh was drowned in. It says the Sea of Reeds. We're just not sure which one it is. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm not even going to venture a guess, because it doesn't matter. God didn't want us to know where the place was. God wants us to know who did it. Otherwise, he would have had them build a big memorial exactly where they crossed. So, God is trying to drive a theological point home with the crossing of his people through the Red Sea where he heaped up the waters. This by no means reduces the miraculous nature of it, but in every way enhances it. God used the sea to deliver his people and judge a nation. Let's go to our first point, God's plan. God's plan. I want us to notice in the first few verses, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. 
Well, I want us to notice right away that God takes ownership of this plan. This is God's plan through and through. He tells the Israelites to turn around. He tells the Israelites to circle about like they don't know where they're going. God is going to deal significantly with Pharaoh. And I want us to notice in these first four verses that God makes several pledges. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue. I will get glory. They will know. In fact, these pledges take the form of poetry. It goes A, B, A, B. I will, he will. I will, they will. And God lays out his plan right from the very start. God selects the location. And as we said, the places are unknown, but the irony is rich. The baby saved by the reeds. The sea after his name will judge this man. And God allows Pharaoh's greed to take hold. The children of Israel end up becoming a bit of, they're the bait. They're the bait in the trap. Pharaoh thinks they found found themselves in a trap. It says that, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, verse 3, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. The grammar there is a little more active than that. He's saying positively, they're trapped. They're hemmed in. This group of rookies, they don't know what they're doing. Yes, there's a, my spies tell me there appears to be a pillar in front of them and a cloud behind them, but they don't know where they're going. This nation whose departure was preceded by all of these miracles, God has abandoned them, and now I can take advantage of it. Pharaoh's greed begins to take hold, but God says right here that he's got special war aims for this event. What are they? God says that his chief war aim is his glory. He says right here, I will get glory over Pharaoh, and the Egyptians shall know that I am, that I am Yahweh, that I am the self-existent one. God's primary war aim is his own glory. Now, when it says here that he will get glory over Pharaoh, it's a difficult set of words to bring over into English. I think uh, it, 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 I wouldn't suggest that a translator do it like this for a, a Bible by any stretch, but here's the idea. It says this, I will get glory by means of Pharaoh. I will get glory by use of Pharaoh. I will get glory in Pharaoh. In other words, what he's saying is, this king thinks he's going to come and destroy my people. He thinks they're going to be hemmed in. He thinks they're going to be a caged bird. But he is just a tool in my hands for my grandeur and my glory. You will see, you will know, and Egypt will see, and Egypt will know that I am. Pharaoh becomes a tool, a lever that God pulls no matter how powerful a man gets, no matter how seemingly invincible a nation becomes, they're never more than a tool in God's hands. America could stand to use that lesson ourselves, but we also must remember that whenever we see evil about the world, 
Well, the passage comes next, and the next point in the passage, the next little section in our passage, comes in chapter 14, verses 5 through 9. And here we see Pharaoh begin to pursue the people. Egypt apparently has some regrets. It says here that when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of the Pharaoh and his servants had changed, had changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go? And here's the key word from serving us, from serving us. You might want to circle that word serving. It's a very important word here in this passage and in the book of Exodus. Service is the word for worship. It's the word nabath. And it means the same for service as for worship. And as we've gone through the book of Exodus so far, we see Moses tell Pharaoh, let my people go, chapter 3, verse 12, so that my people may, not bad, serve me. Let my people go, verse 24, 23, chapter 4, 23, so that my people may serve me. Same thing in 7.16, same thing in Exodus 8.20, same thing in 9.1, and so forth. And what Pharaoh is saying here is, I don't want them serving Yahweh, I want them serving us. And so we see again the theological point of this battle. Egypt wants the people of Israel to serve them, to serve their wicked ends. But God wants this people redeemed for himself to serve himself. In other words, this, this event is answering the question, whom will Israel serve? Whom will they serve? Whom will they worship? And God has claimed these people for his own, and they will no longer serve him. And Pharaoh hits the nail on the head right here, whether he knew it or not. This was all about service. And who was owning that service. I want us to notice that God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until verse 8. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. But we read in verse 6, So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And then the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't harden the man's heart to pursue. It was just that after Pharaoh had determined to pursue, God said, okay, you go back on your word, I'm going to let you follow this through. When you get to that edge and you see the sea part, you are not, it's not going to occur to you to stay back. Pharaoh sealed his fate the moment he hardened his own heart and decided to go back on the promises that he'd made to the people of Israel. The second that he'd hardened his own heart and said, I don't care about all those plagues that afflicted us. God hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had already decided to go back on his own word. As we read here, Pharaoh's army, it's no easy thing in the ancient world to muster an army. There's a little saying, um, I'm sure we have, a, we have a few military guys in here, maybe uh, they would confirm if this is true, but I've read that there's a little saying in military circles. Amateurs talk about tactics. 
professionals talk about logistics. <laughs> How do you supply the army? That's the central question. It doesn't matter if you have soldiers where they're supposed to be if they don't have bullets to shoot. It doesn't matter if you get your soldiers over there to fight if they don't have food to eat. They have to be well supplied. Well, what did the plagues do but impoverish the nation of food and supplies and manpower? Imagine an army depleted of all the firstborn sons. No food to eat. This represented a huge sacrifice for the country. And suddenly, they have to muster the entire army, gather food, take it away from the people. And it says that it was comprehensive. Pharaoh mustered all the horses, all the horsemen, all the chariots. It says that he had 600 chariots. These chariots were the pride of his army. In fact, we know from archaeological digs that the chariots were the crown jewel of his army. They were very impressive. They have drawings of them all over the Egyptian tombs. You can see pictures of them. Go home, Google. But it, Egyptian chariots has its own Wikipedia entry if you want to read about it. These were two-person chariots, usually driven by two horses. The horses were very well trained. The drivers were very well trained. And one man drove the horses, and the other man stood in the chariot with a bow and arrow and a set of pikes and javelins. Protruding out of the wheels of the chariots were blades that spun and would severely hurt anybody who got in their path. And so you can imagine. Think about the last time you stood next to a horse how large that animal is compared to you. Did you know that the German army knew, back when they were all horse-driven, how many men a year would die from getting kicked by a horse? <laughs> they had it calculated. We're going to lose this many men because of horse kicks. I mean, it's when it, imagine a, a, an animal that large charging at you. How many men would it take to stand in its way? Now imagine two of those beasts running at you with a chariot and blades protruding out the side and people in the basket who spend their entire lives training themselves how to kill you. The ground would shake. 600 chariots means 1,200 horses. These chariots weren't suited for mountain warfare. But in the rolling plains in the desert where the Israelites were, these chariots could be devastating. They protected all of Egypt. What chance did Israel have to stand before 600 of the finest trained chariots in the world? Well, the fact is they didn't. There was no chance. There was no scenario where Israel could win that fight. And that's exactly the point that Moses is trying to make. Pharaoh calls his chariots, he calls his horsemen, and the idea was that the chariots and the horsemen were supposed to circle Israel. They were to encircle them like a cattle drive. It was more like a cattle drive than it was like a battle. 
And then the army would come in and take the people and escort them back. There was no possibility for Israel to escape this wrath. The entire army had been mustered. The chariots had drawn up. The horses were along with them. They were going to get rounded up and either killed or brought back to Egypt to be their slaves. And when Israel sees, and they wake up one morning, and perhaps they saw in the distance the dust from thousands of men and horses and chariots marching. When they looked up and saw the devastation that was coming their way, they grew desperate. Let's read what they said here. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel, verse 10, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. I want us to notice that Israel's desperation begins well. When they saw the devastation coming their way, what did they do? They, they cried to the Lord. That was good. That was a good start. But soon, very soon, I would imagine, immediately on the heels of that, their fear begins to breed all sorts of terrible problems. They, they begin, their fear begins to breed accusations. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? They're saying, You must have had some evil plan that you hatched, you and Pharaoh. Remember back when you were growing up in Pharaoh's house? You must have had some plan with him to bring us out here. You can benefit from, uh, from it. We're going to get wiped out. Why did you do this? What's in your heart? They start making accusations of Moses and his man, of God and his man. They have evil motives at mind. All these plagues that we saw, that was simply a ruse to get us out into the wilderness to kill us. And then their fear causes them, I'm not going to call it a lie. I'm not going to even call it a misremembering. They begin exaggerating. They say right here, they say, did we not tell you? Did we not? Is this not what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see, again, they too know it's about serving. They too know it's about who are they going to serve, whom are they going to serve. But you can read all the way back the previous 13 chapters. Israel never said this. They haven't said this yet, but in their fear, fear causes us to do funny things. And suddenly they remember something that maybe didn't happen, or maybe they remembered saying something akin to this, but it causes them to start to exaggerate, and they're panicking, they're making accusations. All the while, Pharaoh's army is settling in on them. But Moses, Moses here shows amazing resolve. And in the middle of this story, we see this great flowering, this blossoming of a leader. To this point, Moses has been relatively passive. He's doing exactly what the Lord tells him to do, no more, no less. There's been a few outbursts of anger toward Pharaoh. He's been obediently leading the people, but we, don't, we haven't seen yet proactive leadership. And suddenly, in a flash, it comes out. Let's read what Moses says. Moses said to the people, verse 13, Fear not, 
Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to decide. I want us to notice that Moses' commands are very strong. He says, no fearing. Make yourself stand. Behold. He's decisive. He's quick. Stop being afraid. I also want us to notice that Moses makes these predictions. You will never see the Egyptians again. Now, God had let him in a little bit on the plan, but God didn't tell him that. He just said, I'll get glory over him. And Moses, what we see here, Moses is not yet privy to the entirety of God's plan. These commands, stand, stand your ground, stop being afraid. Only see, these are conclusions that Moses had drawn on the character and the actions of God. Moses didn't yet know exactly how God was going to deliver. Moses didn't yet know that it would be a parting of the sea. Moses didn't yet know that the sea would close over the Egyptians. But Moses, after observing God and following God and listening to God during this time, had drawn the conclusion that God is not only great, but God is good. And God is going to save these people, and God is going to deliver a knockout blow to the Egyptians. He says, only stand and see. You don't need to fight. All you need to do is look up and see what God will do for you. It's amazing, Moses is correct. And that brings us to our next point, which is, of course, God's deliverance. That's sort of the longest section of this passage here, verses 15 through 31. God says something interesting here. He says, Moses, stop talking to me. (laughs) Stop praying. You You don't need to seek me anymore. You know what to do. Get up. It's not time to pray anymore. It's time to act. And what I want you to do is lift your hands, part the sea, and pass through, and then I will deal with Pharaoh's army. <laughs> now, this is amazing instruction from the Lord, but it's, it's uh, had Moses not seen all of these miracles heading into this, it's preposterous. But God just takes charge of the situation and begins instructing Moses, and sure enough, Moses goes down to the shore of the sea, he lifts up his staff, and suddenly the sea parts. We're told here that there were some means to this miracle. There was a strong east wind that somehow blew the waters into a a wall. We had talked about several of the possible locations, whether it was a lake or one of the fingers of the Red Sea. Those lakes are deep. And so is the Red Sea. It could be that hundreds of feet of water had to pile up on top of itself. My parents live in a lake house. It's a beautiful little home. And a few years ago, Janelle and I were there, and we'd take their pontoon boat and drive around. They have a depth finder. And Janelle and I found a little cove that was always very still, And the water there was 
think it was 122 feet. Imagine that far down. It could be deeper than that, but piling that on top of another. If we reckon a story is 10 feet tall, then you're looking at 20 stories of wall of water stacking on top of itself. 20 stories. You ever get that sense of tallness, of height, when, say, you go and walk downtown in a big city, and you're walking down the road and you see these super tall buildings on the right and on the left? Imagine walking through a corridor about that wide and having it be water. Water just coming up and hitting some mysterious wall and flowing down. The ground that you're walking on is dry. God does this. He, he did something else that was very kind. He buffers them. The angel of Yahweh went behind them. And he made a ring so that the Egyptians and so that the Israelites never made contact. Did you know that Israel never... Egypt, rather, never even got close enough to fire one of those arrows from their chariots. Never even got close enough for it. I'd like to just tell you sometimes the things that we fear, the things that seem so terrifying to us. Oftentimes, they never happen. And these things that we build up in our minds... And then the thing that we're scared of happens. Maybe it's a meeting you're not looking forward to, or an event, or whatever. And you've built up this thing in your mind. And none of that happens. And you walk out laughing at yourself, don't you? Because you were never in danger. the danger that Israel faces here is only apparent. They could see the Egyptians, but that's as close as they got. God walled them off. Wouldn't let them get any closer. Then God divides. The waters, we're told here, ripped open. It's a violent word. Uh, the, the passage, I have several, there are several passages you can look at, but I have one here, Zechariah 14.4. We're told that when Christ comes again, he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives are going to rip in half. That's the word. The waters didn't gently open. God tore a path right between them. And they stood up like a wall. God confuses. The Egyptians began to fill into the gap with the... Israelites. And it says, I want you to go here, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. I want you to look at that word, clogging their chariot wheels. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have any idea why our translators translated it, clogged their wheels. The word is removed. In other contexts, 
it's the word for taking off your clothes. So the King James actually nails it. Their wheels fell off. God went like this. I don't know if he made that motion. God doesn't have a hand like I have, but he went, you know, something like this. And the wheels came off like you would take a hat off. And so I would guess that with no wheels on their chariot, that yes, it would be hard to drive those chariots without wheels, that they would only move forward with great effort. What does it say? Clog their chariots so that they drove heavily? Well, I would guess so. God just popped their wheels off. Have fun with your chariot, boys. <laughs> the wheels came loose. Now they're in a heap of pile. They're in a pile. So now you've got horses pulling empty carriages. The men are out trying to put the wheels back on, I would assume. God changes the hearts of the Egyptians when they see the wheels come off. I guess that's where we get that little thing. This is where the wheels came off. It just occurred to me. You, you've, you've had this. I had a boss who was at, he would say, when did the wheels come off of that meeting? And, uh, and I would joke with him that before the meeting began is when the wheels came off. Um, he was a good boss. Well, they're out there. God changes their hearts. They, they begin to see, and it says, the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against us. Well, how would we know that they said that? God must have let the two parties get close enough that Israel could hear the Egyptians bemoaning their station, that God was suddenly fighting for them. But I want you to know that this realization didn't result in repentance. They didn't bow to their knees and say, Oh, Lord, please forgive us for pursuing your people. It was a grim realization, a dark realization. They resented that God was suddenly fighting for Israel and against them. And then, once Israel is safely to the other side, like the climactic moment of Old Testament theology occurs. It says that God swept the entire Egyptian army into the sea. The word is an interesting one. It means he just he shook them off like he would shake a rug or shake sand out of a garment. God looks down Perhaps they were giving some flight back to safety on the other side. And God rippled the sheep, knocked them to their face, and then closed the river, not the river, closed the sea over them. The same God that opened the water to save his people, closed the water to judge his enemies. It's a complicated God that we serve. He's severe in his judgment, but glorious in his salvation. 
nobody has ever perished while bowing at the feet of God. Those who resent his leadership and hate his people will meet a decisive end. And God knows how to preserve the wicked for judgment, Peter tells us. And God knows how to preserve the righteous. And here in this moment, we see both the salvation and the judgment of God in one sweeping of the waters back down as God deals a decisive blow, a knockout blow to his enemies and the salvation for his people. There's coming a day when Jesus will return to the glorious hallelujah shouts of his people and we will praise him and join him. And that will be a terrifying day for those who resent his leadership. We will rejoice. His enemies will weep. And the same God who brings salvation also brings judgment. And the event of the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of that. I have a few conclusions. I'm going to leave them off. Don't advance to the next screen. We'll save that for next week. But here's what I'll say. Do not presume on the good grace of God. I don't know why you come to church. I don't know why you come to church. People come to church for all sorts of reasons. They come to church because their parents make them. They come to church because there's people here they like. They come to church for free coffee. People come to church to learn the Bible. God wants you to be here so that you can see and believe his message of salvation. We're told in John chapter 3 that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And everyone who believes in him will be saved. And those who refuse to believe in him are condemned already. It's not that you're... I want you to think about this. Two groups of people in the middle of the sea. One that are being saved one that are not being saved. It's not as though there's this middle ground where you can hang out for a while and make your choice. You're either going to be scooped up and delivered by the saving hand of God, or you are already condemned to be rushed away in God's judgment. And the only way, the only way to avoid the judgment that is already hurtling down upon you is to confess your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to save you from your sins. I deserve your judgment, O oh God. Would you please save me? Save me from the wrath to come. Save me from the waters that will engulf me. Save me from what I deserve. When you do that, God just picks you up, 
out of the one category and puts you in the other. That quick. Please don't leave here under the false assumption that there's a middle ground or a second chance or some other mediating place. You are either in God's salvation or you are under his wrath. And God is offering his generous salvation through the blood of his son. And he wants you to accept that by faith. Well, next week we're going to study how Israel worshipped in the face of this great salvation. Miriam sang a song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And we'll sing that song. What we're going to do is we're going to pray now. And for the sake of time, um, we're, gonna, we're just going to take two minutes. We're going to forego our final song. Um, we're going to take two. Oh, Nathan wants to sing. Okay. We're going to sing. Uh, no, we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing our song, and then immediately afterward, we're going to have our business meeting. Um, if you don't have time for the business meeting, um, I totally understand. Uh, if you had no intention of joining our business meeting, uh, the public is welcome to join our business meeting. Um, only our members can make motions and so forth. Um, but anybody's welcome to join our business meeting. But uh, we'll do that as soon as we finish our last song.